morning we're going to begin a study in the book of Job. I'm really excited about it and I hope you will be too. I don't think it'll take a lot of effort to let you know that this really has content that is going to be very relevant to our lives today. Job is an ancient book, and I'm certain, though, that it will provide timeless help. While it's ancient, the book of Job couldn't be more relevant, and I think that the timelessness of this book is intentional. It's intentional partly because of the subject matter. All of us suffer. Humankind has always suffered. But more than that, we don't know who wrote the book. We don't know where they wrote it. We don't know when they wrote it. And it doesn't really matter. Because all of us have and all of us will suffer. Suffering is universal. I've lived long enough to know that everyone has a story. Some have heard the surprise announcement that your spouse doesn't love you anymore. That your marriage that you thought was alright is now over. Others have made a trip to the doctor. You don't remember anything else from the conversation except the phrase, it's cancer. I'm sure some of you have a wayward child or there might be a long-term realization that you'll never have children. And there's uh, event after event and pain after pain in this life. Well, and then there's a global pandemic in which some of us have lost jobs, some of us have sick relatives, and we fear for our parents, we fear for our health, we find ourselves at the end of financial resources, not to mention emotional reserve. And so, what I'm saying, I guess, is that the book of Job brings up timeless issues on the one hand and timely issues on the other. No one will escape this life without calamity that rocks their world and causes them to ask God some hard, hard questions. I think now more of us are asking those questions than at any time that I can remember. And so part of my job as a pastor is to prepare you for this kind of thing. To place some ballast at the bottom of your boat so that when the winds come, you won't easily blow over. So that you will hold on to your faith and not curse God when your calamity comes. And you may feel like you're in the day of calamity right now. You bow your head to pray and you spread your life out before heaven and God doesn't seem to listen. And nothing seems to improve. If that's the case, then Job is for you. Job is an innocent man who suffered more deeply than most of us ever will. Yet in the midst of his pain, he held on tightly to God. He stayed firm in his calamity because he got the right answer to a most fundamental question. You see, when we suffer innocently, we have to be able to answer a large and central question. Because there are lots of other questions that we're tempted to answer. 
What's going on? Why is this happening to me? And we have all of these other questions. But that's not the central question. Job brings us right to the central question. It's a question we have to answer. It's a question that all of heaven waits to hear us answer. And so this morning to find the question, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. The book of Job is in the middle. It's right before the book of Psalms. And so you find one of those, you'll find your way there. And we're going to look at Job chapter 1. Before we begin to read, I wanted to say the book of Job is unique. We're going to study it for six weeks. And you're going to recognize maybe that there are 42 chapters in the book of Job. And we're going to do it in six weeks. And if you're accustomed to reading your Bible from A to Z, from front to back, then this is going to cause some uh, stress for you, I imagine. But the book of Job doesn't just go from start to finish. The book of Job goes in cycles. And this morning, we're going to look at the first round of cycles. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 essentially have two revolutions in the same cycle. We'll see next week that there are multiple revolutions in the cycle with the conversation with Job's friends. But for now, we're going to go around the circle at least twice. And so we're going to do that, and what's going to enable us to cover the book in six weeks, and it's not unreasonable, and so please don't get stressed out about it. Well, here is the question. The question that is uncovered in this first chapter and the whole rest of the book uh, aims to answer it, and that's this. Is God worth loving when life is hard? Can you keep your faith in a living, powerful, good God when the wheels come off of your life? When you experience pain, can you believe in the God of the Bible? And so, that's the question we're going to answer. It's a question Job has to answer. And so we're introduced to Job in the first uh, verse. And he is a unique person. He is innocent and he will suffer. The narrator goes out of his way to let us know that all that's about to transpire in the life of Job is undeserved. And he starts out this way in chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose Name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. And very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Job was blameless. He was upright. He did what God wanted. He 
feared God. He put away evil. If you are looking for a candidate that deserves suffering, Job was not one. His piety extended farther than anyone's you know. He, he was so intent on um, pleasing God and living before God in all of his life that it tells us in the next verses that he prayed and sacrificed not only for his own sins, but even for the sins of his children. He was concerned that God's reputation in their eyes would um, be upheld. That they, he was worried that they would perhaps sin, and if they sinned, then God would um, somehow uh, judge them, or they, they would bring, be brought under God's curse. And so in verse 5 it tells us, when the days of feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he'd rise early in the morning and offering burnt sacrifices according to the number of them all. For God, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And he said, Job did this regularly or continually. And so, everything that Job did, he did that he might please God. And God had blessed him. God had given him 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 females. He was richer than anybody around. And so Job was the epitome of a godly person blessed by God. Suffering when you deserve it is one thing. When you do something stupid and you bring suffering on yourself, it's not hard to understand. It's the suffering that we don't deserve that is hard for us to get our minds around. It's hard for us to have our heart not broken when we don't seem to deserve suffering at all. And yet suffering of the righteous is genuine, it's visible, it's unexplainable, and often overwhelming. Good people do suffer bad things. Things that are not imaginary and seem to be out of proportion to what they deserve. People respond to suffering in all sorts of different ways. Some minimize it and will just say, oh, it'll be alright. They'll deny it and act like it's not that bad. When it actually is bad. You can't pretend your way out of suffering. Christian scientists have made an entire religion around the denial of evil and the minimization of their suffering. But that's not a realistic option because suffering happens and it happens all the time. And if you are going to be a biblical Christian, you must accept that. And you must not pretend that suffering doesn't exist or come up with a worldview that says all of life is supposed to be easy. Tears are part of God's design for this world, just like laughter. The advice that many of us received as children, big boys don't cry, doesn't hold water in the midst of reality because big boys do cry. 
especially when their pain is as intense as Job's is. So I've already anticipated it, but it's probably worth stopping and looking at what Job lost and how he lost it. Because it happened in the most visceral, stomach-turning, rapid-fire sequence that you could possibly imagine. Job gets a series of messengers who talk over one another as they continue to deliver bad news. Look at verse 13. It says, Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone am escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, The fire from God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, there came another who said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It almost takes your breath away, doesn't it? To read that and to read it quickly. I believe that's how it was delivered initially. And how we're meant to read it. You notice the compounding and the escalating of the suffering. And that's truly how it works in life, isn't it? You get up in the middle of the night and you, to go to the bathroom and you stub your toe. And that's bad enough. And you hop into the bathroom then and you look at your toe and when you look at your toe, you hit your head on the medicine cabinet. You say, why can't the toe stub and the head bonk happen on different days? It hurts more because they come together. Pain is greater when the calamity compounds. It's like compound interest. Maybe you've just gone through a bout of medical bills and you're just about to recover when your car strains you on the side of the road. The medical problems are bad enough, but any hope of recovery is dashed when you can't repair your car. And so now Job is left wondering, what in the world is happening to me? And that's the wrong question. However, God tells us and gives us a glimpse into heaven then Job never gets to see. We see something Job never sees. And that's helpful for us. Because if the only question you have is what in the world is going on, you never come up with a satisfactory answer. It's not until we see what is at stake in heaven that we understand the proper question. And oddly enough, the proper question is asked by Satan himself. It's only when we see what's going on in the unseen realm that the true question of undeserved suffering uh, really finds its focus. 
In chapter 1, verse 6, and again in chapter 2, verse 1, we have two different cycles that are almost identical. And we find that the sons of God present themselves before God and Satan then is with them. Satan is the accuser. He, he probably doesn't belong in that company, but he, he either weasels his way in or he's there by special invitation. And there's a routine counsel with other spiritual beings and Satan, the accuser or adversary, joins them. And it's God then who initiates the conversation. He asks Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been going around the world looking and observing and noticing all the sin, all the rebellion, all of the problems. He didn't exactly say that. I added that. He is not there to compliment God. He's there to insult God. And then God stops him and says, Did you notice my servant Job? Did you notice how righteous my servant Job is? And he invites Satan to attack Job. And why would God do that? God's not a bumbler or a fool. John Piper suggests it's like a jeweler who's in the back room and the thief walks into the jewelry shop. And he says to the thief, did you notice the diamond in the front window? I think that's the nicest one. It's the most brilliant in the whole store. Putting it right out there for the thief to walk away with. It's clear that God wanted this exchange for some reason. He wanted to display his own worth in the affections of his prize servant. And in front of all heaven then, that is exactly what Satan attacks. And Satan in this whole council challenges the worth of God. He challenges the worth of God in the eyes of his servant Job. What looks like an attack on Job is really an attack on God and on the worth of God. Satan suggests, he accuses really, that Job is simply a pious mercenary. That he serves God only because it pays. And if God didn't pay him, Job wouldn't serve him. And so Satan raises the fundamental question that is hanging when the righteous suffer. And that is, is God worth loving in and of Himself? Whether He pays you or not. Whether He gives you things or not. Can you delight yourself in God through Jesus as our mission statement says? Or will you only do that if He gives you stuff? If He gives you health? If He gives you a happy marriage? If He gives you healthy children? 
This is the eternal and central question raised by pain. Whether we hear it or not. Whether we end up asking it or not. Interestingly, in our text, we get to see the question raised in heaven while Job does not. That gives us the advantage. How often do things like that happen to us? We have pain. We have suffering. We wonder why. We don't know what's happening. And we don't see what we can't see. We don't see the hidden questions in heaven. And we end up asking the wrong one. I think you can almost hear the gasp from the rest of these sons of God or these other angelic beings around heaven as Satan makes his cosmic insult. And so here you have the question that must be answered in suffering. Is God to be preferred over possessions or prestige or family and ultimately over health? That's the question the people of faith must answer. And what happens when that question is answered is what heaven is ultimately all about. Because God is looking for His saints to desire Him more then they desire anything else. He is wanting to be more valuable to them than all of those other things. So that we have no other God before Him. And you have to know that heaven will be the ultimate realization of that desire. You don't want to go to heaven because there are harps there or because there's gold streets there or because the temperature is good or whatever. You want to go there because God and God alone is there And He is the one who makes your heart satisfied. God created this world for this very reason. He delights to see His value reflected in the hearts of His children. When they cherish Him, they hold up a mirror to God and reflect His glory back to them, back to Him. That's why God takes such delight in Job. That's why Job is God's prized servant. Now, this strange uh, counsel in heaven where this accusation is being made is important. And it's important for you to notice a couple practical and helpful things in this scene. First of all, I want you to make sure that you notice that God grants permission for this suffering. It's clear by the structure of the conversation, the fact that God gets the first word and the last word, that God is in complete control. God is not bullied by Satan here. This suffering that Job experiences would not happen if God did not give the okay. Now I want you to just to step back and think about your own suffering. You're not suffering outside of the parameters 
of God's sovereignty. God has given permission for you to lose your job. God has given permission for you to catch a disease. God has, God has given permission for this suffering and He is over the suffering. He is the sovereign King of the universe and of your life. So don't think that He's uninvolved. Don't think that He's off there somewhere not paying attention. That's the first thing is God grants permission. The second thing I want to make sure you notice is that God sets limits on this suffering. And the scene in heaven happens twice and the limits happen twice in this story. Which makes me think that it's somewhat of a paradigm for the way that God engages our suffering. He grants Satan permission to cause suffering only this far and no farther. The first time he says, you can uh, you know, take his camels and his sheep and his, even his children, but you can't touch him. The second time he says, okay, you can, you can touch him, but you cannot kill him. And there's limits. And this gives me some reason anyway to think, you know, it could be worse. If God didn't set limits on my pain, it could be worse. And I can take hope in that. And one of the strategies of grace is to spend time contemplating how it could be worse had God allowed it to be worse. Think about that. Can you spend time reflecting on how God has spared you some of the pain that a certain situation could have caused but didn't? That's one of the implications of God giving permission and setting limits on suffering. And so, God did that for Job. And the ultimate question of God's worth then was brought up by Job's suffering and all of heaven awaited the answer. And the answer is found not in external circumstances, but in the heart of the one who is hurting. And it's the heart of the sufferer that makes manifest the worth of God to the world. What goes on inside a suffering person is what reveals the value of God both to heaven and to earth. The heart of the suffering saint is the mirror for the glory and worth of God. If you think about this scene in heaven and put it in the terms that sometimes you may have heard about spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare or spiritual conflict is at its root a conflict over the worth and beauty of God. It is not ultimately what a bad boogeyman Satan can be, but it's whether or not he can get you to decide that God's not really worth it. Satan is not in the hocus-pocus business. 
He is not the person you see in scary movies. He doesn't show up to a Halloween party in a red costume with horns and a pitchfork. He is simply out to assault God's glory and to get you to curse God and value other things more than you value God. And so here we find in this calamity, Job provides for us the answer. You can think of it as though there are two rounds in this prize fight. And after the first round, Job gives us an answer that could not be more clear. He says in chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. It says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came to my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. At the end of round one, the judges hold up their scorecards and give round one to Job. Satan is foiled because he was unable to wrench God's, Job's heart from its affection for God Himself. He did not succeed at getting Job to curse God. Instead, look what it says in verse 21, Job, blessed the name of the Lord. It had exactly the opposite effect in the life of Job. The bell rings for round two and the same question hangs in the air. Will Job find God to be the one who satisfies his heart Or is it going to be his health? Is it going to be his own person? And in Job chapter 2, verse 10, he asks the question in responding to his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so Job refuses to let go of what he says is his integrity. He refuses to let go of his affection for God even though in his own words he says, we will receive from the hand of God evil as well as good. That shall we receive from God Only good. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He understands this to be a spiritual question. And so does his wife. And his wife is the one who clarifies it even more. 
in the middle of his second affirmation there in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, she is the one who brings the question back up. And she does it with the same words that, um, that Satan uses in his accusation. I had somebody who learned that I was going to preach on the book of Job. And their only counsel to me was, be kind to Job's wife. This person didn't care what else I said. They just want to be kind to this woman. When she says, when Job's wife says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now that sounds awful. Maybe you have a hard time being kind to someone who offers that sort of counsel when Satan is trying to get Job to curse God. But let me help you be kind to her. First of all, she has just lost everything. She's lost her financial security, her ten children, the health of her husband. What else would you expect her to say? This was her grief talking. And I think that we would be wise to leave room for grief to talk. And not be panicked when hurting people say things you don't like. Second of all, I think that Job's wife was in touch with heaven in a way that no one else in this whole story is. It is her speech to Job. She summarizes God's words by raising one of his key issues. God said it is Job's integrity that you need to notice. And she puts her finger right on the chief concern that God has for Job. She also summarized Satan's interest by using his key idea, curse God. And so while she may have given bad advice, she did see clearly what the issues were. Job's integrity in cursing God. And then third, Job understands her to be speaking like one of the foolish women. He doesn't accuse her of being the foolish woman, but just sounding like one. And I'm sure there was a group of foolish women that would spout off all kinds of religious nonsense. And she sounded like one of them, but she wasn't. And so I think, I hope, that was Job's intent in saying that. But it's my intent to give her the benefit of the doubt. But the reality is, Job affirmed that his heart was fixed. That God was enough for him. His determination was not that some small, weak God was enough. Some God that he didn't know. Some God that who he had never experienced before, that somehow that religious practice God that he'd heard about, that he was enough. He understood that the God who was the sovereign creator of the universe, who was sovereign over trouble, sovereign over suffering, that that God was good enough. That the God, that God could bring evil and blessing. 
I want you to notice as well that after both of Job's affirmations, the narrator goes out of his way to make sure that we understand that Job did not sin by what he said. In both affirmations, Job said God was in charge of giving and taking away. God was in charge of sending this evil. Well, that is a that is a strong statement that I would want you to be very careful about making. But the narrator goes out of his way to say Job didn't sin when he said that. And I think it's because Job was holding on to the affection for the God who afflicted him. This literally was a matter of life or death. It's not just some theory or good idea. It's not a theology class or a Bible lesson about a guy who had bad luck. This is of utmost importance. Because if you haven't experienced it already, you will. All of us will. We're looking at the book of Job because somebody who sees this is going to go to the doctor and be diagnosed with breast cancer and leave behind three young children and have to find the strength to say in the midst of her pain, blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, we're not faced with merely What in the world is going on now? We're faced rather with the question, is God enough? Is God valuable enough to you to satisfy and comfort your heart when you have dead children? Can you embrace Him when your skin is ravished with boils? Will you be able to say, blessed be the name of God? It's the only way you'll make it through suffering with your faith intact. And so we have to look at Job. We have to look at the Scriptures. We have to go back and back and back until we can't see anything else but a God who is so great and so good that we don't dare let Him go when hard things hit. This question is of eternal importance, but it's also of practical value. Let me just suggest a couple things for you. If your heart is heavy, in using Job's struggle here, God has put His finger on some things in your heart that need to be dealt with. Maybe it's some things that you would never let go. Maybe it's some things that that if God pried your fingers from them, your heart would curse God. Maybe, maybe your heart's held on to its integrity in your suffering. And you just want somebody to walk alongside with, uh, with you. There's a there's a button on your screen that you can request prayer. 
and someone would love to pray with you. If you want to fill out a connection card and put your prayer request there, then you can do that. And the, the staff would be delighted to pray for you. And I want to just ask you too to come back the next several weeks. Make an extra effort to be here, to maybe read through the book of Job in that time. Because we've seen the central question, really. But the book of Job provides several perspectives on the issue of suffering and shows us many facets of this beautiful God that we serve that we may only see when we suffer. And so I hope that this was helpful to you. But it's not the full picture. It's just an introduction to the picture. And so I hope you'll come back. Because evil is an intruder. It's absurd and it doesn't belong in this world. And the book of Job points that out. It tells us that something's gone terribly wrong. The world isn't what we want it to be. And yet, the book of Job also shows us that there's more at stake than simply comfort and happiness. We read this as Christians, that Jesus came to redeem, uh, and He redeemed this world. And it's a world that experiences the curse of sin and the rule of the evil one. And Jesus crushed that adversary. And He disarmed the principalities and powers. And Job points us to the ultimate unjust sufferer who held to his integrity and honored God's will as more important than life itself. And we celebrated his crucifixion and his resurrection last week. Job suffers differently than Jesus did. Job suffers to show the world the value of God. Jesus suffered to show the world the value of God and to redeem those who imperfectly reflect the glory of God or who fall short of the glory of God. That He might forgive sin. That He might bring us back into a relationship where we can prize God more than health or comfort or riches. And when I say that, I want to make sure that you know we have so much more grace than Job did. We know that the avenue or the means by which we might love and appreciate and delight in God is through His Son Jesus. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the only way that we will come to know this mysterious God that we find in this book of Job. Jesus is the one and only who has made Him known. And so it's my heartfelt desire this morning that when you're faced with significant disappointment, when suffering breaks your heart, and you don't think you can get another breath or take another step. You are faced with 
the question, is God really what you want out of life? Is God really as good as He says He is? It's my hope and prayer that you can raise your hands and worship like Job and shout through your tears, yes, yes, He is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this, like so many other things, is so much more easily said than done. We know we can't do it without grace. We know we can't do it without Your um, help and support and comfort. And so I thank You for what uh, You have done for us in Christ, that You've sent us Your Spirit to help us. But Father, I pray for really each of us. Maybe we're not even suffering right now, but we can identify those things that if they left our lives would leave such a hole that we would maybe be unable to bless the name of the Lord. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us to voluntarily surrender those things so that they don't need to be wrenched from our hands. And so, Father, I pray that You would grant us grace like Job to be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we'll thank You and we'll bless You Because of Jesus, amen.